0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have Amarnath Amrasingam on the show, and we're going to talk about the current situ- situation in Sri Lanka, as well as discuss the Easter attacks happened a couple months ago now. Um, I will make the disclaimer that today is June 4th, because I know we are going to post the show a little bit later, so bear in mind the date with the things we talk about. But first of all, um, as I i like to call you Amar. Amar, thank you for coming on the Loopcast. Thanks for
1: having me. It's great.
0: So you just recently had a piece published in the May-June issue of the CTC Sentinel titled Terrorism on the Teardrop Island, Understanding the Easter 2019 Attacks in Sri Lanka. Fantastic piece. I highly recommend anyone to read it because it is so informative. Uh, looking at the attacks as well as... The historical content, the content of the situation in the country, so amazing, amazing research in, on this piece, so thank you so much for writing this. And for, uh, for our listeners, Amar is a senior research fellow at the London-based Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He is also the author of Pain, Pride, and Politics, Social Movement Activism, and the Sri Lankan Tamil Dysphoria in Canada. He is also the co-author of Sri Lanka the struggles for peace in the aftermath of war and in fall I'm very excited to announce that he'll be the assistant professor at Queen's University in Ontario so congratulations on that new fantastic position coming up <laughs> Thanks, why don't you give our, our list a bit of an overview on the attacks that we saw in Sri Lanka this past Easter
1: yeah so um... It it was kind of Sunday morning, I I was lying in bed fast asleep, and then a friend of mine uh, texted me and said, you know, I I think you better get up for this one. And uh, I checked Twitter, as I tend to do, and uh, I was kind of stunned into silence, because, you know, this was, um, these were churches that I had visited, these were cities that I have family and friends, Um, and uh, so... So, starting at about eight forty-five in the morning, there had been a series of bombs that had gone off in uh, five-star hotels in Colombo, the capital city, uh, in Negombo, uh, and kind of historical churches in Negombo, and uh, as well as in the east of the island, uh, in Batiklo, uh and a few other cities. And so, these are these are kind of well-known churches, well-known uh, hotels, um, and from the very beginning. Uh, it didn't really make any sense, right? That was that was the kind of my first impression of it. Um, kind of understanding the historical fault lines um, and the ethno-religious fault lines of the country. This one, the, the target selection mostly didn't didn't really fit. It, there was no real animus towards the Christian community. Um, we've never seen this kind of uh, this level of an attack against places like hotels, for example. And so uh, something was off about the attack from the very beginning. And, and so I started. Um, Uh, putting up on Twitter fairly early that this was very likely a kind of international plot of some kind, either with, uh, you know, very likely linked to the Islamic State in some way or another, because it just didn't didn't make any sense.
0: I mean, I remember waking up as well and turning on the TV and seeing the various locations of the attack and just, of course, it was horrible to see this and the pain and everything. Um, And I think the number is about, over 250 individuals that were killed in that attack, is that correct?
1: Yeah, so the Lankan government came out uh, initially and placed the number somewhere around 350 or 359, and then the uh, health ministry uh, revised the numbers a few days later just to kind of bring it back down to 250, which, I mean, <clears throat> pissed a lot of people off, but at the same time um, gives you a sense of, what kind of attack it was because the health ministry put out a statement basically saying um, there were so many body parts that we couldn't actually identify uh, who, you know, how, how many people were actually killed. And so um, people were a bit <clears throat> irritated at the government for being a little insensitive with kind of throwing numbers without thinking about it too much. But um, I think it's just a testament to the kind of attack it was and how how, um, how crazy of an attack it was that that, you know, they overestimated by 100 people uh, the number of dead. So eventually, a uh, few was brought back down to uh, a little bit over 250. I forget the exact number, but yeah, around 250.
0: So at this point, the investigation is ongoing. And from what I've heard as re- in reports, it's about 56 people that are being held in custody. What do we know about the investigation, if anything?
1: Um, so, I mean, the Sri Lankan government uh, basically vacuumed up uh, a bunch of people after the attack. Um, as kind of many governments in South Asia do, they, they arrest anyone even remotely linked with, uh, with any of the attackers. Drivers were picked up, uh, cousins, you know, uncles, fathers, mothers, everyone was taken in for questioning. Um, so the numbers of... Kind of the people who were arrested fluctuated quite drastically as well in terms of um, you know we t- we've taken in a hundred people, and then now we're back to- we've released a bunch and others are being questioned by the uh, by the criminal investigation division and, and so on but I think <clears throat> a few days after the attack, it was somewhere around fifty six people um, individuals kind of broadly linked uh, to some of the suspects um, and and uh, individuals who were kind of suspected of prior involvement in, in a lot of the other incidents that happened in the country, like the destruction of the Buddhist statues uh, earlier that year <coughs> um, in 2018, um, and, and, and things like that. So a lot of other bizarre events were happening uh, towards the uh, end of 2018 that people didn't really know what, what, what was going on, and then eventually uh, they were able to link those kind of disparate events uh, with, with some of these uh, suspects of the eastern moments.
0: So, a lot of news agencies are, of course, associating this with ISIS. Let's talk about the ISIS connection and what we know about it.
1: Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, what, what happened very interestingly was, you know, uh, two days later, uh, ISIS put out uh, no nothing short of, I think, three or four different claims, one through their AMAC agency, uh, one through their Nasher uh, kind of news release, and then um, just before noon, on I think it was Tuesday, they released um, a photo with uh, with all of the attackers and then a, then a kind of one-minute video, a Pledge of Allegiance video that came out. Um, one thing that can be said, I think, you know fairly clear, clearly, is that somebody in the attack network um, had some kind of connection with Islamic State Central or at least their media apparatus, right? Uh, the very fact that it was released through their official channels on Telegram uh, at least points to some kind of network there. Uh, the broader question of whether there's any financing, uh, logistical support, uh, um, support in terms of making explosives and things like that, um, is still kind of up in the air and I think will be for some time. Uh, what is interesting is that this, kind of, uh, this network seems to um, have some sort of connection to uh, a bunch of cells that had uh, existed for some time in uh, Tamil Nadu in southern India, as well as Kerala in southern India, um, and a lot of these guys had gone off to Syria. Some of these guys had gone off to um, the uh, ISIS's Khorasan province in Afghanistan, Pakistan, um, and I think also Kashmir. <clears throat> and one of these cells uh, actually returned back to India and were arrested. And um, what the Indian government eventually found out was that this cell, uh, a group of three that had gone off to. Uh, fight with the Khorasan province of the Islamic State in return, um, we're actually quite plugged in with uh, Zakran Hashim, uh, who is the uh, purported mastermind of the Easter bombings, uh, as well as some of the other attack network or, or individuals in, in the kind of Tamil Nadu cell. <coughs> um, whether that means that... Uh, I mean, I mean this raises a few interesting questions and in that but we don't exactly know, for example whether the Khorasan province or the leadership of the Khorasan province um, are actually in direct communication uh, constantly with the leadership of ISIS Central uh, and, and what kind of relationship that is, right? And so we can we can tell that some people who went to go fight in parts of Afghanistan or Pakistan or Kashmir returned to India, and they were listening uh, to the speeches of Zahran Hashim. Um, and so that, that that's as far as I think the evidence points to so far in terms of um, linkages with somebody uh, who was fighting with ISIS at some point. Um, there's been some other reporting more recently to say uh, that individuals um, that that uh, were part of the attack network, you know, studied in Australia, studied in England, they may have communicated with Anjum Chowdhury, uh, they may have communicated online with uh, Neil Prakash, who's a uh, Australian ISIS fighter who went by Abukali del Cambodia, <coughs> um, and most people who watched ISIS since the beginning uh, know him quite well because he was quite active online and um, constantly on Messenger and Telegram and things like that. Um, whether there's some connection there uh, is, is very difficult to know as well. Um, so there's a bit of kind of pieces of speculation going on in terms of actual legit connections between the attackers and uh, ISIS Central in any meaningful way, but um, I think eventually some of these pieces will be put together.
0: Let's discuss a little bit uh, what they're calling the ringleader of these attacks on Easter, Zahran Hashim. And mm-hmm. in your CTC piece, you really map out this path towards radicalization. So who is this individual and how did he get from there to here, basically?
1: Um, he was a, uh, you know, a radical preacher from the East. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background or your listeners a bit of background on, on Sri Lanka, uh, it, 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 even though it's a tiny island off the coast of South India, uh, it is kind of bizarrely complicated in its ethno-religious landscape, right? And so the east of the country, um, which is only about you know 100 kilometers or so, um, actually has 30% Muslims um, and, and, and 30% Sinhalese uh similarly buddhists and 30 percent uh tamils who are predominantly hindu Uh, and from very early on in the 90s um there were a lot of kind of rumors going around that the muslim community in the east was getting funding from the saudi government or funding was coming in from these mysterious places abroad um and and had the potential to if not radicalize um at at least um there was a kind of reform movement going on towards kind of more conservative forms of Islam, um, and it, it, it's kind of out of this climate that uh, Zahran Hashim emerges. He finishes uh, uh, kind of uh, studies at a madrasa um, and eventually comes out and forms his own a variety of his own organizations. Which um, I'm not going to go into all the details because people can read about it uh, online. But um, he forms one of the one organizations called uh, Darul Uthar uh, which stands for kind of abode of tradition. Um, and from from early on, it, it's clear that people are very uncomfortable with him. Right? They, he, he, he speaks crazy, he's very extreme, he's uh, always calling for violence, um, always raging against the Sri Lankan regime, Sri Lankan government. And from early on, they start to kind of uh, kick him out of these organizations. So, and so organization after organization, he joins or he starts and he's eventually uh, kicked out, um, and he starts um, really becoming kind of pro-ISIS, and pro-ISIS publicly in late 2016, where um, in January or February he rented out a cultural center in the east, a fairly well-known cultural center in, in Katankudi, uh, called the Hezbollah uh, Cultural Center, not not to be confused with Hezbollah, the organizer. <laughs> um, he kind of uh, had Rents, rents out this place, gives a 90-minute speech, which was kind of laced with pro-ISIS material, um, going on and on about how the Muslims in Sri Lanka need to contribute to the cause in Syria, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And um, it causes a massive backlash in the community. The community doesn't want to hear it. They're freaked out by how public uh, he's willing to talk about this stuff. And they hold uh, a kind of counter-event in, in February of 2017 to basically say, um, we're worried about this guy and we're worried about ISIS's influence uh, in our country. Um, and so this is, this is how early it begins, right? September, we're talking February 2017, uh, two years before uh, before the inkling of an attack. <laughs> um, and, and that pushback event, the February pushback event, uh, kind of galvanizes them even more um, in... Uh, In in March of that year, he holds um, a kind of rally in front of uh, a Sufi mosque or near a Sufi mosque, where he kind of purposely starts a fight with uh, followers of this uh, well-known Sufi uh, imam or Sufi scholar in the community. Um, And and, and he shows up to this event basically armed with weapons, and and police are called, um, and he goes into hiding. So a bunch of people are arrested, including uh, several of his own family. Um, and he uh, and his other brother go into hiding, and they're basically never heard from uh, heard, heard from again until um, until the bombings. And by by heard from again, I mean you know uh, seen in person, kind of wandering around the community. Uh, what he was doing after he went into hiding. Was he put out YouTube video after YouTube video after YouTube video, um, which eventually which as time went on got more and more crazy and more and more radical so initially he was just talking for <coughs> talking about um, uh, launching attacks or supporting the Islamic state but um, what happened in early 2018 was it became much more about uh, killing non-Muslims in the country taking out law enforcement, um, that the government of Sri Lanka is complicit in anti-Muslim violence, um, and that uh, there needs to be a kind of revenge attack of some some form. And this was kind of uh, immediately after uh, the March 2018 riots in Kandy, in the center, center of the country, where... Um, kind of di- uh, A week of uh, riots happened, anti-Muslim violence, um, mosques were burned, businesses were burned, um, and, and Muslims were on the streets and so on. Um, and so, in the same month, March 2018, he releases a, a video, which seems to have disappeared entirely from the online space, um, where he uh, goes on and on about how uh, the government needs to pay for anti-Muslim violence. And so... Um, what happens over time, it seems, is you know, he, he was conservative, uh, he was what we might call um, Salafi, and he eventually um, became much more supportive of the Islamic State in late 2016, got immediate backlash from the community, um, and then kind of just spiraled uh, into more, uh, more and more kind of violence, um, which was precipitated also by uh, persistent kind of anti-Muslim violence in the country as well. So, sorry for the <laughs> wrong, long
0: rambling answer. Oh, no, it's fantastic because there is so much background that I don't think people know about unless you really dive into this like you did in the Sentinel piece, the CTC Sentinel piece. So, I mean, it's good to hear it as well from you. Um, so, he's, he was calling for the support of ISIS, but looking at the globe and where we've seen support for ISIS coming from... <coughs> I mean, has Sri Lanka really been an area where there's been a lot of support or not? I mean, from what I gather, not not a ton of individuals left Sri Lanka to join ISIS in its different provinces.
1: No, it it was never really uh, a major hub of any kind of ISIS activity or Al-Qaeda activity. Uh, There was kind of growing uh, Wahhabi influence or Salafi influence in the country, um, but it was never... Um, kind of tipping over into jihadism in any way. Um, even the number that went out, uh, that 32 Sri Lankans had gone off to uh, gone off to Syria is, is a bit misleading away a way because it, yeah. it, it's basically only five families. Um, so five families went um, kind of collectively so their husband, wife, and their kids um, and so when you add all of them up you get 32 but it's not like 32 hardened fighters or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> so even the even the number of people who went to Syria um, was fairly, uh, you know, fairly limited. And yeah, so it, we just don't have a history of um, jihadist plots or jihadist activity or jihadist attacks uh, in any way. If anything, um, uh, as I kind of detail in the piece, like it, we have almost a 100 years of anti-Muslim violence with very little in terms of Uh, push back very little in terms of even militant resistance um, or even kind of social movement organizing from the Muslim community to push back against this kind of stuff. It's mostly been kind of middle-class academics in the capital city who've uh, pushed back against this anti-Muslim violence or um, kind of campaigners internationally, uh, academics abroad who've pushed back, but uh, we haven't seen any uh, real kind of mobilization of Muslims in the the country to push back against persistent and kind of ongoing violence they've experienced for some time. To then suddenly um, see this kind of attack happen and then realize that, well, if 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 it's going to be a consistent attack, <laughs> it should have targeted uh, Buddhist Sinhalese sites or government sites or uh, something like that, where uh, you can actually say that you know, historically there's some animus there between the Muslim community and, and uh, the Sinhala hard uh, you know the hardliners the the Buddhist hardliners, um, and so some of those sites would have been um, kind of the targets that they would have chosen instead what you have is a target on five-star hotels and Easter celebrations uh, and kind of historical churches uh, which which barely made any sense um, and so I think um, again there's no real proof of this but I think uh, it, it's probably reasonable to say that the attack you know target selection uh, actually came from uh, from the Islamic state because of course they, um, Their, uh, you know, target selection has always been Christian sites and in the Christian community around the world, and so um, it seems kind of like there was some mobilization from from the NTJ and Zakran Hashim uh, to eventually launch an attack locally, but it was maybe hijacked or taken over uh, in terms of target selection by uh, by the Islamic State. When that happened, how that happened, uh, still very much in the air.
0: A little bit after the attacks, we had this momentous video of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. For those that might not know, he's the emir of ISIS, the leader, we could call him that. Um, And in this video, which was very long, him making lots of statements, he actually addressed the Sri Lanka attacks. And I know that you've spent time looking at this video, so why don't you give us an insight into what he said.
1: Um, so what's interesting about the video is you have him kind of sitting, talking about uh, the different provinces that, that uh, ISIS controls at the moment, um, but, it's, but it, it's quite clear that the video uh, is recorded before the Easter attacks, um, or maybe not clear, but it, it seems like it was recorded before the Easter attacks, and then an audio message, a, strip, a, a, a kind of a simple audio message by Baghdadi is appended to the video, um, to say, you know, uh, thanks for the oath of allegiance and thanks for these attacks um, and, and, and so on. Uh, but, but he actually says the attacks are in, uh, um, uh, in response to what happened in Bagus al falkani in, in, in Syria, uh, the last kind of village that was uh, controlled by ISIS before it was liberated by the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, and so he makes no mention of you know local politics or local grievances or anything like that in Sri Lanka. He says it's a response to what happened in uh, what happened in Syria, uh, but it's kind of added on to the video towards the end to just say thanks. But you can tell, I mean, it is his voice. It's not like uh, it's faked or anything. Um, but it's it's uh, it, it, it points to the fact that Baghdadi is very much alive at the time that the video was released um, because it is his voice and it is. Uh, uh, the
0: rest of the bit is definitely him. So. so going back to Hashim, Hashimi, sorry, um, clearly he was on the radar of intelligence, like the intelligence community of Sri Lanka, I would assume, mm-hmm. thinking about all of the instances and the videos that he produced leading up to the attacks. And we've also heard that there were reports early in April that were provided to Sri Lankan authorities about warnings about possible attacks. Why don't we look at this and also discuss how politics are playing into all of this because I've read a lot of interesting things about the political situation in Sri Lanka and how uh, these reports of the attacks and warnings um, play into the politics of the country.
1: Right, yeah. Um, So what I think happened here um, and it's kind of An ongoing point of debate inside the country and with politicians kind of yelling at each other and pointing fingers at each other, rightfully so. Um, I think I think so. We can kind of date whatever happened back to about October two thousand eighteen when the president Maithripala Sirisena got rid of his. Prime Minister, uh, Ranel Vikram and basically installed uh, the former president, Mahinda Rajapaksa, uh, as the new Prime Minister. Uh, And this was kind of met with um, all kinds of disdain because Rajapaksa was the president in power and his brother, Tavaya, was the defense minister in power during the end of the war in Sri Lanka in 2009 um, against the LTTE, where a whole host of human rights violations um, and, and, and kind of crimes against humanity were committed against uh, the LTT and, and Tamil civilians. And so to put this guy back in power, who's been a historical uh, strong man for a long time, uh, didn't make any sense. Um, and also that Sena had basically uh, uprooted Rajapaksa from the government uh, a, a few years earlier. And so to, to kind of put him back in power didn't make any sense. But what that eventually created was that um it, it kind of launched the country into a full-blown full-blown constitutional crisis where um both prime ministers were claiming the prime ministership and neither of them had kind of refused to step down uh, and the supreme court had to intervene to basically say uh what the president just did is not uh, is not cool we want kind of run a wick back in power um but what that did was it kind of um I would say, politicized everything, right? And so even national security, which was supposed to be kind of above and beyond uh, political bickering for the security of the country, um, all became highly politicized. And so uh, different people were invited to different meetings and some were kind of banned from uh, attending national security meetings. Um, and I think uh, it's it's this kind of broader political climate where these warnings from the Indian government came uh, in April, um uh, three times in April, and April 11th uh, and onwards, or April 4th and onwards. Um, and so it was kind of received in, in a climate of chaos where um, it, it, was, it didn't land on the right person's desk, let's say. Um, I think also that uh, whoever looked at it um, also suspected that this was um, an effort, and this is me speculating a bit, well, it was an effort by the Indian government uh, to kind of play a, play a part in, in a Sri Lankan politics as well, uh, because there's also this bizarre uh, push-and-pull relationship with India uh, in Sri Lanka, where the Indian government uh, likes to have a voice uh, in who is president and who is not in Sri Lanka. Um, and, and so uh, I suspect that when they received this kind of news of a plot, um, they would have said, uh, or, you know, powers that be in Sri Lanka would have said, oh, this is an effort by the Indian government to make me kind of cl- uh, clamp down on the Muslim population uh, in Sri Lanka and kind of create a backlash and create some more violence um, to to kind of put a- certain other people in power. Um, and, and so um, it, it was kind of, I think it would have been received with a bit of skepticism because it was an election season and so on. Um, So, basically, those two reasons were kind of formed the backdrop in which these constant warnings are coming in from the Indian regime, uh, Indian government about, uh, you know, uh, Zahran Hashim and uh, his brothers and um, all of these kinds of things, in in, in kind of remarkable detail as well. You don't usually see this much detail in an intelligence report where they actually give you the names of a bunch of people, um, you know, uh, attack locations and... Uh, the name of the organization and all these kinds of things, but all of it was ignored or um, you know uh, not not acted upon by the right parties, um, and and so this is why you kind of lead led to the disaster of, uh, of Easter. <clears throat> but um, what's happening now, going into the election in, in, in later this year, is um, both parties are basically uh, accusing each other of being uh, you know having dropped the ball on this and and and. Uh, And and so on. And then Rajapaksa is coming back into power, basically saying that I'm going to stamp out um, Islamic radicals and uh, launching a whole kind of campaign against Muslim communities. So uh, they're not kind of, let's say, um, taking the right lessons from the attack in any any meaningful way.
0: So that was going to be one of my questions that... Looking at this lack of reporting or lack of really paying attention to these warnings, do we see any signs of a positive in the sense of from now on it's going to t- be taken more seriously? But it sounds like, unfortunately, it's once again being used for political means.
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a very frustrating country <laughs> um, in, in in many ways because it's um, the, the the kind of amount of misinformation, the amount of. Uh, kind of everyday racism and everyday xenophobia um, is quite remarkable and all kind of coming from the authoritarian uh, community, right? So it it largely originates from kind of hardline Buddhist Sinhalese groups like the Bodhavala or BBS. Um, And they they, they kind of have this bizarre... um, you know Tamil academics used to call it the uh, majority with a with a minority complex so there's always this this kind of fear that this uh, this this country that belongs to the Sinhalese and belongs to the Buddhists is going to be taken over by Sharia loving Muslims and uh, you know separatist Tamil parties and 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 things like that and there's this, there's this kind of constant fear that they're going to lose the island um, which is basically what again has popped up uh, post attack with all of these kind of rumors about the Muslim community and sterilization uh, that that the Muslims are secretly trying to sterilize uh, the majority population to kind of eventually take over as the as the, as the main as the, as the majority and so on um, all of this kind of misinformation circulating online and circulating and kind of trickling down to uh, uh, to, to, to the streets, but it 's not being um, it 's not being addressed or stamped out or criticized or set aside from anybody uh, of significance in, in in the political elite, uh, except kind of some more uh, liberal ministers let 's say um, but it, it 's just kind of allowed to fester and allowed to um, carry around, carry on as if as if we haven 't seen it in the past you know directly lead to violence in any way. Um, so, it, it, yeah, it's just a it's just a constant
0: depressing place, <laughs> but that's just how it's been in the world for a while. You mentioned a little bit, but I'd love to tackle it more, the topic of social media and the online environment and how it's aided in violence throughout yeah, the yeah. history of the island and the idea of spreading misinformation. How has that played out in Sri Lanka? And currently, you mentioned it's it's doing the same thing again.
1: Yeah, so I mean, one thing to keep in mind, of course, is that the ethnic tensions, religious tensions far predate um, the rise of Facebook, which in whatever, 2007 or whatever it started, uh, it, it, it's much older than social media. But what, what we've seen um, more recently is that uh, the kind of bizarre uh, conspiracy theories and, and uh, rumors very much start online. Um, and circulate through WhatsApp groups very quickly, circulate through Facebook groups very quickly. Um, and kind of, you know, people like me and others who watch these rumors just dismiss them as ridiculous, and obviously this is not going to empower people or obviously this isn't going to galvanize uh, the community because it's so obviously uh, so obviously ridiculous in that, you know, Mus- uh, Muslim uh, clothing store owners are spraying t- sterilization cream on women's panties. And so that, so that the Sinhalese population uh, is, is uh, you know, is prevented from multiplying stuff like that. And you're like, well, this is, this is fucking nuts, and obviously no one's going to believe that, but you realize that it does have an impact, and it does eventually trickle into uh, into real life riots, and Muslim businesses being burned, and uh, mosques being attacked, and individuals being killed, and you're kind of like, who is believing this stuff, and how is it possible that, um, and obviously insane conspiracy theories are, are, are you know, having real life impact. Um, part of what's happening here is that you know some of these get riled up, uh, some of these conspiracy theories rile people up. But then um, we've started to see real evidence of um, kind of some political influence, some law enforcement influence, some military influence on on some of these protests and some of these uh, riots. Um, you know they're not they're not stamped down quickly enough. They're uh, allowed to fester. They're, they're kind of actively supported sometimes. Um, and social media has played a role in that as well where particularly this time around uh, the riots that followed the Easter attacks um, you saw for example addresses of, of Muslim owned businesses being posted online you had uh, f- uh, photos of kind of uh, the, 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 the store uh, store Muslim stores being posted online, um, mosque addresses being posted online, and then uh, eventually people kind of you know attacking those sites um, and so you 've seen uh, we've kind of seen how these things play out uh, so often, um, and I think Facebook and WhatsApp are trying, trying their very best to, uh, to kind of keep up with this, but of course they're limited by language and they're limited by cultural nuance and understanding what's really happening on the ground, um, and, and certain kind of derogatory words that show up in, in the Sinhala language that may not be completely obvious to an outsider um and, and and things like that. And so they're they're trying their best, uh, but I think they're they're, you know, kind of going to be overwhelmed a little bit. The other challenge is, is the WhatsApp groups and I don't know how, many, how how uh how much these companies have eyes on uh these kind of massive WhatsApp groups that exist that that, that in some cases where I'm part of a few now which have, you know, uh three thousand, four thousand people in them. Um and, and things get spread Very quickly, and then they similar kinds of memes and similar kinds of messages end up um, on Facebook and so on. (laughs) And and a lot of these guys have learned to be very smart about it, right? So instead of having a text, for example, where where the the some kind of software might be able to catch it, uh, it's embedded right into the image, and so um, all you see is a kind of image being posted in terms of its metadata, where a lot of the um, machine learning may not be able to capture the actual text on the word, particularly when we're talking about foreign languages and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think these social media companies have have their work cut out for them, particularly in places like Sri Lanka, Myanmar, where we've seen um, where where we've seen real violence, uh, kind of on the heels of of some kind of bizarre online campaign.
0: So as you've mentioned, there have been a number of anti-Muslim attacks and protests since the Easter bombings. In your opinion, considering the ethno-relations going on in the country and ethno-religious relations, in the wake of this violence, what does the future hold as far as challenges and hopefully some positives maybe for Sri Lanka, if there are any? Um, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think I'm think I the wrong person for optimism. <laughs> but, um, I
1: think um, there are there is some opportunity for 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 kind of setting a new course if the government uh, and if the majority population uh, recognizes that, you know, within the majority strain, uh, there is kind of, you know, uh, extremist elements, right? And and which which has rarely been talked about. I mean, it's been talked about, which has rarely been addressed, to say that within the majority population, there are these crazy... Um, Ethno supremacists and uh, Buddhist religious supremacists who are uh, who, who never really see a place for minorities in the country, who don't know what to do with the Tamil community, don't know what to do with the Muslims in the country, uh, who don't fit within this kind of ethno religious paradigm that they've built for themselves. And um, unless that's addressed from the top down, from uh, you know families, family members governments um community leaders um nothing 's really going to change and, and we 've seen uh just i mean just as i 'm talking to you <laughs> there's a crazy case going on in uh, Kurunegala which is um in, you know uh, just outside of um uh, the capital where a doctor was arrested um and then Uh, Buddhist monks started visiting the police station to basically say this guy is responsible for sterilizing forcibly sterilizing 4,000 women Um, and then the police are kind of forced to take it seriously and they put a call basically saying if there's any complaints about uh, this doctor please come forward and all these uh, women uh, started to come forward to say you know, we, we were forcibly sterilized by this doctor because I had a kid and now I haven't been able to have a second kid, so clearly he must be responsible. Um, and and, it, and it's kind of spiraling into uh, these kind of sterilization rumors again, which uh, in the past have led to actual violence. We haven't seen any actual violence this time around, but I think um, it, it, it's really only another time before uh, these kinds of cases, this constant fear of, um, the majority population being being secretly hampered in some way by insidious minorities, um, you know, continues to cause violence on the streets. And um, I think it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't see any major uh, pushback from those in power to say, uh, "How are we going to address these conspiracies? How are we going to address this bizarre sense of insecurity in the majority population?" And I think until until that's addressed, we're not going to see much change. And this existed. You know, pre-social media, it's, it's been sped up and expanded uh, through social media, um, and I think we'll probably see future instances
0: of it. Going back to the attacks, what mm-hmm. sort of questions are we left with? Because it seems like there are a lot of things that haven't been answered, and I'm sure hopefully as the investigation goes forward we'll get some more answers, but what sort of questions are we left with, whether they're specific to the attacks or larger?
1: Um, yeah, I think I think one of the questions I have is what happened to Zahran Hashim um, around the 2015-16 mark, because it seems like he went from basically just being a pain-in-the-ass conservative uh, Muslim preacher to quite openly being an advocate for the Islamic State. So I'd, I'd like to get a bit more details on what happened there, <coughs> who he talked to, what inspired him, um, it might have been simply that he was watching ISIS videos or something, or it might have been someone locally, or whether he was communicating with someone. We I don't think we have any real sense of that. Um, and I'd also like to get a bit more sense of um, how the attack network was in communication with anybody in ISIS Central, whether it's in Syria, Iraq, or um, uh, the Khorasan province. Uh, there's no real sense of that yet. Um, and I'd like to get a sense of what actually went wrong with all of this information that was coming from the Indian regime. Um, you know, there, there's been some accusations about, right, people didn't pay attention to it and so on, but um, a little bit more detail in, in terms of what actually happened and how the internal uh, disagreements between the prime minister and the president may have uh, interfered with that would, would be would be some of the questions I have going forward uh, in terms of the details of the attack. <laughs> um The broader question, of course, is um, what is the Islamic State planning um, with with the South Asian, in the South Asian landscape, particularly now that they've declared an Indian province and declared a Pakistan province. Um, Are we going to actually see uh, more logistical support given to these provinces, more finances sent to these provinces? Uh, Are more fighters going to be moving into these provinces? Um, what what does it actually mean to you know allow this or declare a province uh, in South Asia? Um, we We kind of know what it meant in in Syria in terms of um, kind of religious institutions that were built and structures that were put into place, the state structures that were put into place but uh, this its it's a little different when you declare something um, you know will it in, will it hind uh, or or Pakistan. so I'd like to get a sense of uh, or at least watch watch very closely going forward uh, how the Islamic State you know reacts to South Asia and, and what kind of plans it has for South Asia and whether we can notice any actual um, legit kind of uh, materials being sent that way as opposed to just kind of inspiration.
0: Also, in your opinion, so we had this. Khorasan province and now as you said we've had these new provinces of India and Pakistan and Khorasan is kind of an umbrella province Afghanistan Pakistan and somewhere in between why do you think we're seeing these two provinces of Pakistan now and India being separated and honed out as specific provinces versus falling potentially under the umbrella of the Khorasan
1: um, I think I think two reasons. One, uh, there's a kind of propaganda element to it, so we, this is why there might be a sense that um, there'll be increased attacks in these regions because the kind of propaganda landscape is being prepared to take full advantage of any attacks that happen locally. Um, the other reason, uh, as kind of Hassan, Hassan explained uh, somewhere, I think on Twitter, <laughs> um, was that uh, you know the. As these organizations, as these provinces become um, more kind of sm- or more, uh, smaller or fractured, they, uh, they can kind of take care of their own internal dealings a bit more. They can fight back against infiltration, uh, factionalism, egos, uh, and things like that. And so as opposed to having this massive province, which you're responsible for uh, kind of coordinating attacks in Pakistan and Kashmir and India, uh, in Sri Lanka, um, it it might make more sense to kind of stand up these kind of smaller regions as responsible for their own uh, for their own uh, activities in those regions. Um, so this is the opposite of what was happening in Syria and Iraq in in July 2018, where ISIS basically consolidated uh, 20 plus of its provinces into two. Um, and and part of the reason for doing that, I think is also to uh, a, a level of propaganda value to say um, now they can claim a whole bunch of attacks uh, in Syria under this one banner, as opposed to trying to explain why you know Kirkuk only had one attack or something like that. They can say Iraq has a bunch of attacks um, and that they're still kind of active and, and uh, very much have an eye towards Syria and Iraq and maintaining the presence there. But I think kind of diversifying if you will uh in 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 africa and south asia uh sets the stage for kind of increased activity in these regions as well and so whether that actually happens um we'll have to kind of keep a close eye on but it seems like that's part of what the what the goal is uh, to eventually have have much more activity in in the regions where you've you've diversified and stood up provinces on their own
0: well, to wrap up the talk, we like to give our guests, if time permits, the opportunity to maybe touch something that we might not have touched on or have a final thought. So I want to hand the floor over to you.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think I think what kind of the Sri Lanka attacks brought home for me because uh, it was kind of this bizarre moment where everything I've studied in South Asia and everything I've been studying on the ISIS landscape kind of converged into one one thing and kind of uh kind of stunned me into silence for for a couple of days, but I think uh what, what's become kind of obvious or uh, and it 's something we know already in the academic space is that um you know there's very much a localized component to a lot of these conflicts so when we talk about Kashmir when we talk about India and Pakistan, i mean I think sometimes terrorism scholars lose sight of the local lose sight of the historical um, kind of aspects of, of of these countries and um it's It's something I think we should you know keep in mind much more often because I, I part of what part of what the Sri Lanka attacks had me doing was you know explaining to Sri Lanka scholars uh what ISIS was and then ex- explaining to ISIS scholars what was happening in Sri Lanka um and and kind of realizing that uh we're missing enormous you know both sides were missing enormous chunks of what was important to kind of explaining the attack. Um, and if that's happening in Sri Lanka, it's, it's, it's very much happening in um, a lot of other countries that, that these attacks happen in. So uh, it's just something to keep in mind in terms of the importance of kind of understanding, of, co- of course, understanding uh, transnational terrorist groups and, and their objectives, but also uh, understanding the local context a bit more uh, thoroughly uh, and, and how those two interact, <laughs> I think, will be important going forward.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast. This has been really fantastic and insightful and eye-opening in so many ways.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. That was great.
0: And for our listeners that want to know more about Sri Lanka, I highly recommend Amar's books and also the CTC piece that we've mentioned a number of times really goes into so much detail about the attacks during this Easter as well as the run-up to them. So do read those if you're interested. Thank you so much.